Hey everyone, and welcome to the Fully Occupied Podcast. This is the show that explores the most crucial ideas that are shaping the future of real estate, technology, and work. Hosted by your friends here at Occupier, we bring you some of the most interesting people around and dive into the topics that impact most everybody. Let's get into it. Hey guys, Matt from Occupier here. We have a pretty awesome guest for you here today, John Jarvis. John is a senior vice president at Hughes Marino. They are a tenor rep shop out of Southern California, but they do work uh, nationally, globally with customers. Uh, John is a really interesting guy. I enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. Uh, what caught my eye about John is, you know, I was scrolling through LinkedIn and I saw a post of his, which he entitled the Jarvis value model. Uh, so I dug into it. It was a little bit tongue in cheek, but it has a lot of good advice for tenants out there looking to make good real estate decisions. I won't ruin it for you now. Uh, love for you to listen through, but uh, John has a really unique perspective on, you know, what makes companies successful in their lease transactions. Um, we're going to dive into a bunch more topics as well. Uh, we'll explore things from dual agency to COVID, post-COVID readiness strategies, everything in between. We hope you enjoy. Thanks. Hello, Matt. Hey, John. How are you Howard. doing? Fantastic. How are you? <laughs> doing great. Thanks for uh, joining Fully Occupied here today. Really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. This is going to be fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, you and I have been connected for a while here, but never really dug too deep into stuff. So uh, really pumped to just get your perspective on things and, and uh, you know, let you kind of share some knowledge with us. I love it. I love the fact that you found me via my Jarvis value model article. Yeah, it's, it's, been flo- it's been floating around LinkedIn for a few years and, uh, you know, it surfaces in my feed from time to time. So I, I figured it'd be a good place to anchor our conversation. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think it came up because I reposted it in this moment. It felt like a message that I should put back out there. Just part of the message being like, there's no such thing as market rent. And right now, like there's no such thing as market rent. Nobody knows what the market's supposed to be. And right. uh, I just happen to think it's always kind of been that way. And it's up to us to negotiate and find the market. But uh, anyway, glad you read it. I write these things and put them out there and you never, never know who's reading them. If anybody's, if it's getting through to anybody. Yeah. Well, that one got through to me for sure, especially in light of everything that's going on today. I mean, you could argue whether or not there's even a market right now, but you know, we can <laughs> get into that when we, when we dig deeper into the model, but um, you know, just for the audience here, you've been representing, you know, tenants, um, exclusively in real estate decisions for over 30 years now. And, you know, I gotta, I gotta assume you've pretty much seen it all, but if you've been doing something, you know, for that long of a period of time, you, you gotta love it. Right. So maybe you could kind of just dive into, you know, what, you know, what makes you, you know, so excited about what you do? Why is it enjoyable to you to commit basically your life's work to it? Yeah. Wow. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I do love what I get to do every day. Um, and who wouldn't, right? Uh, if you think about it, we get to, you know, parachute into these amazing companies and, you know, hopefully earn the trust of the executive team. Um, they're all super bright, driven people doing amazing things. And yet here we come in and they, they hopefully we earn their trust. They trust us with a real estate project. Um, that's a feel good. And, and then ultimately to then go and like execute on an assignment with, with my team and kind of show that I was worthy of that trust. I mean, that's the whole human experience for me. Like go in and earn your trust and then show myself to have been worthy of that. 
and we just get to do that day in and day out over and over again, working with really, um, you know, strong business leaders and helping them to be even, even better, make better real estate decisions. That just feels good all day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you can, when you can help a company on its mission to, you know, achieving whatever, you know, business results they're looking, you know, to achieve, you know, you're part of that process and makes, makes it that much more fulfilling. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and this work that we do at Hughes Marino and tenant representation and trying to call attention to some of the issues around dual agency in, in the industry. I mean, I know it sounds corny, but we really do believe that we're champions of the underdog, like in, in this world of commercial real estate, um, you know, the, the tenant is the underdog. So in this sense, corporate America is the underdog um, because this, the, stacks, the deck is a little bit stacked against them in commercial real estate. So we get fired up. Like in the micro, we help them make better companies, make better real estate decisions. But in the macro, we're, we're kind of changing the industry. We're calling attention to the, the, to the problems of dual agency and trying to elevate everyone's game, a little more fiduciary, a little more advocacy. And that feels good. Yeah, well, let's dig into that a little bit further. Um, but, I mean, specifically, what, what do you think are the problems with dual agency? Um, you know, it's just if every aspect of the industry is, you know, serves the landlord community, like nobody's ever aggregated the tenant clout in these negotiations. And as a result, the leases just get longer and longer. And, you know, I, I can point to BOMA, you know, Building Owners and Managers Association. I often say that there's no T in BOMA. The tenant wasn't invited to that party. And yet here they are, the de facto you know, measuring standard for office buildings. And in their 2017 update, you know, suddenly landlords are allowed to charge for and call as rentable square footage, like rooftop decks and patios, balconies. <laughs> I mean, who, you know, who said that was okay? And uh, it's just kind of crazy. And in that one move, I, I'm trying to remember the, the math. It was something like, Across the United States, we've now added square footage, rentable square footage equivalent to another um, Seattle metropolitan office market. <laughs> Suddenly that right. exists. It didn't exist the day before, but now it does. Um, think about the value that creates for those owners overnight, but, that, but nothing's changed. And it's all on the backs of the corporate tenants who now have to pay for that as a lease comes up to renew. Suddenly they're remeasuring the building per BOMA which makes it somehow sound official, you know, who does that anyway that, you know, if, if we, when we get to a hundred percent tenant side market share, you know, things will, things will change. <laughs> they won't be able to charge for, uh, you know, parts of the building that aren't part of the building anymore. Yeah. I remember back to like, you know, when I was in brokerage, you know, having, being in a hot tenants market, tenants were, you know, suddenly asking for percent ownership stakes in the properties. Yeah. Because it was one of these situations where, you know, the, the deck was stacked towards the tenant and the landlords were just trying to, you know, find whatever they could um, to fill space. And, you know, tenants could come around and say, look, if you want my 300,000 square foot headquarters, then you got to give us a 5% ownership stake in this, in this asset. Right. I don't know if that was very commonplace and it happened a lot, but it was just an example of like where the tenant finally had an upper hand right? Um, based on market conditions. It was really just based on market conditions. It wasn't really based on the fundamental fact that the tenant is the actual occupier of the space that brings the value to the property itself. I mean, 
space is space, but vacant space is, is worthless. Well, that's you right. know? it's all subject to this negotiation and I'm all about free markets and let's go. Right. <clears throat> what I, what I take issue with is if, you know, the agent representing a tenant also lists buildings, then all of a sudden the landlord across the table is a potential client, a potential customer, and probably a bigger potential customer by an order of magnitude than this one tenant transaction. And, and, and if you're, you know, and if you're later doing capital market transactions, then all of a sudden everything you win in the lease is making it harder for you to sell that asset later. It just compromises your fiduciary role. Really, we believe tenant advocates should have a single singular focus and that's what's best for the customer. You know, the landlords aren't potential customers. Um, you know, we don't jump them down on the desk and pound, pound on the table. That's not my style. Um, it's going to be a negotiation and we're going to take the landlord, you know, where they don't want to go and we'll find the market. And that's what we're doing these days. And I think we're in a unique position to do it because we don't, you know, these landlords are good people. They're suffering too. Um, so let's have a conversation. Let's try and find that new market. But it's guess what? It's a little lower than uh, the community is currently talking about. Right. So if you're kind of on the other side of the fence where you have a dual agency situation where you may represent the property or another property that that landlord owns, your property management arm might actually manage that property for them. Your ultimate goal is to sell that building for that owner, which is kind of the crowning achievement of, you know, the whole, you know, agency side of things. So there's like three potential revenue streams there that a, that a landlord agent or just a shop, you know, has, and then you introduce the tenant representation piece, which then says, well, who's, who's my master here, right? right. Like what is, what is my benefit to push this landlord into that uncomfortable place? If, you know, I've all of a sudden, you know, have all of these other um, objectives in mind. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'm always quick to say, I, I, I want to be clear that like, that are flawed. <laughs> it's not that the people are great people and highly effective and capable broke. Our, our team in Seattle, Owen Rice, Gavin Curtis came to us from CBRE where they were two of the top office tenant rep brokers at CBRE. And once they heard about Hughes Marino, they saw the light, they came across. I, I wrote an article about that, calling it this watershed moment. Like their success will serve as a beacon to all the other brokers, basically saying, look, if you want to do this thing on the tenant side, get off the landlord's platform because that clouds your judgment. You can't do the same thing. And oh, by the way, there's even a further conflict in what you were just mapping out those three examples. Well, now just to pick on CBRE, CBRE, CBRE global investors, you know, how much space do they occupy more and more they're becoming the actual landlord so you know these good brokers at cbre i mean are they able to then go take cbre global investors where they don't want to go or are they even invested in that partnership i i don't know right but it's just the world would be better if we weren't subject to those kind of conflicts that destroy purpose of serving the the only customer the tenant um yeah. So uh, it's not the people that are broken. It's the model. And we're, we're not a big fan of dual agency. You know, we changed the law in California. I don't know if you know, Jason Hughes really championed the, the disclosure. Right. Um, 
requirement, which a lot of people aren't even getting that right now. You're supposed to disclose your dual agency at the outset of an assignment before anything happens. Now it's just kind of getting tacked onto the lease when you go to sign the lease. Well, that's not good enough. You know, think about an attorney, right? If an attorney didn't disclose a, a conflict and it was later uncovered that they had this conflict, like every judgment they had won would be reversed and they'd be disbarred. And, you know, so why, why aren't we held to the same standard as the attorneys? We're certainly negotiating, you know, multi-million dollar high value transactions. I just feel like we should be held to a higher standard. Yeah, it makes, makes a ton of sense. Um, so how have you seen just the evolution of the tenant rep broker over time? You've been doing it for 30 plus years. You know, what was it like when you started? Were you, were you more of like a pioneer in terms of, you know, taking that hard line, advocating for the tenant? Did, was, it, was it an opportunity based on like market conditions at a certain period of time? What's changed in the brokerage business in your mind that, you know, probably impacts, you know, the, the macro effect on these companies? Yeah, that's a big question. And I am embarrassed to admit how long I've been doing this. I mean, aside from originally keeping, you know, hard copy flyers for all these buildings so that we could know what's available right. you know, pre-CoStar. Um, here, here's how I'll answer it. Um, let me tell you how we've changed um, with Hughes Marino and some of the things that we've been doing that I think are a little bit different. Um, you know, the core team here has been together for 20 plus years, but we recast as a firm as Hughes Marino in 2011. Um, and we've just been, so for example, one of the first things we did that if we have a secret sauce, I, I think maybe I'm not giving away secrets here. I would say, you know, when we, when, when Shay Hughes stepped forward, Shay Hughes is Jason Hughes wife. Um, when she stepped forward in a visible leadership role as our president, our COO, um, she'd always been sort of working in the background with Jason at their kitchen table. Um, but when we recast this Hughes Marino, she came forward and then, and we accept, we're like, great. Um, and she got us thinking in a different way. One of the first things she did was have us spend an entire day with Mike Robbins. Um, I don't know if you know, Mike Robbins, author, uh, coach, yep. and all about values, an entire day talking about value at our core and what mattered most. And, um, out of that came our 10 core values, which we talk about all the time. Um, and, and we do it, we do talk about them all the time because we mean it and because they matter. And that's how we sort of keep them as a priority. So, um, you know, we, we built this company around our core values, um, other things that we've done that are different. We keep adding to the sort of the Hughes Marino experience. Uh, Jason is always looking for some innovation, a fresh approach to this business. Some examples, we've, we now have a team of real estate attorneys. Um, we had heard about another firm, I won't name them, that basically instructed their agents not to review leases because they aren't attorneys. And to be providing a lease review is taking on some legal liability. And we, we talked about it and we decided, you know, we, we can't leave our clients to fend for themselves. We, we need to be reviewing the lease. So if we're not if we're taking on legal liability, let's hire some attorneys. So we have real estate attorneys now. And when you get my comments, you know, I, I'm backstopped by these brilliant real estate attorneys and giving you a full, robust review. And you can then take that and send it out and have it reviewed. But maybe you spend $500 instead of $5,000. Um, so, yeah, we've added attorneys. We've added architectural planning and design. We hired 
uh, Nick Willis away from Gensler and, and um, planning a design team. Now we're not sort of beholden to a landlord or their architect to do a space plan. We can do the test fitting and the space planning on our own, kind of keep the landlords in the dark, just control that process a little bit more. Um, oh, and by the way, Nick brings in our, enhances our offering in workplace strategy. I always thought workplace strategy was a bit of a buzzword, like, okay, what is it really? And Nick Willis, <clears throat> Nick Willis comes in and says, I'll tell you what it is. Workplace strategy is data. And I thought that was fascinating. And he came to help me to understand that um, he and his team go in. We just did this with a 60,000 foot HQ relocation. His team goes in, meets with the management team at the outset of the, the assignment. Um, and they, they ended up going about 12 people deep into this organization. And they interviewed all 12 people ask them a lot of questions about the space, the current space, future space, the business, their priorities, um, how they saw themselves. And then they come back and produce this report, which basically says, here's what we heard. And now the client, has, and the client says, okay, great. I think that captures who we are. And now that workplace strategy document can serve as a sort of guidepost for the entire process, the, the, the buildings that we look at, the decisions that we make, the way that we proceed, that's workplace strategy. I didn't have that before, but now we've got Nick and his team and we're deploying that on projects where the client wants to get into understanding their priorities. Super cool. So yeah, we added architects. Um, we're deep in project management. You know, we've got 12 construction and project managers where, um, we, we, we rely on those, those guys. You'll come to like me in the transaction, but you're going to come to love our construction right. managers because they're leading the weekly project meetings. They're getting this place built on time, on budget. Going into the negotiations, we know what it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. You know, just everything's better with a team. And I'll give you two other things. So have you heard about our sprinter vans? No, no. Here's, here's Jason Hughes again with really creative, innovative thinking. So if you think about the business of commercial real estate, when we're with a customer, we're often driving around looking at buildings, right. which means I'm facing forward. I've got maybe a brochure under my arm, a cell phone in one hand, another hand on the wheel, and I'm talking to you over my right shoulder. Like, this is the way we interact, and I'm trying to keep you safe and get us to the meetings on time. And Jason had the idea, like, that's less than a sprinter van and let's deck it out and let's hire a driver so now when we go and tour you know i get to sit facing you uh, there's two seats facing back these big beautiful captains you know leather monogrammed <laughs> reclining massaging chairs because jason can't do anything part way <laughs> and then there's room for six people from your team to be in the van looking forward i've got a big flat screen behind me i can show the google earth as we're touring um, and we can interact and i'm not I've got a driver who's going to get us there on time and safe. Um, you know, as this thing drives through the market and it says Hughes Marino, and that's pretty nice advertising too. But all of a sudden the experience of looking at buildings is fun. Uh, you know, there's a little espresso maker in there. and uh, it, It's fun to go out and look at buildings. And now we can talk face to face. And, I'm, and I've got a driver that's going to get us there on time. So now we have a fleet of three soon to be more Sprinter vans and you'll see them around town when we conduct tours. That's innovative. That's new. It's genius. You just got to make those things autonomous, and uh, yeah, you, you don't even need the driver. Yeah, don't don't tell our drivers. <laughs> William, these guys these guys are great. Uh, but you're right. And uh, and and the last thing I'll add uh, that's an interesting innovation. So we keep winning these culture awards. Um, again, credit to Shay Hughes and her efforts. Um, we're also super 
heavy on our operational support. I, you know, we have something like 120 people on the team and of that only 36 of us are brokers. Um, so we massive support ratio. Uh, and I was telling you, we win these culture awards. We were voted best company culture nationally by fortune magazine. Like That's awesome. you're kidding me. I, and so how do we do that? I mean, credit to Shay. So people started asking us how we do it and we started sending Shay out to meet with these management teams and we call it our culture consulting practice. I mean, there's things that we do that fire up the team and we share that with folks and we now have a culture consulting practice. And by the way, the, the experience of the space is part of that. Um, you know, it's funny, I gave a talk last year as, and as recently as January, I gave a talk called The Role of Real Estate in Organizational Culture. It was a pretty good talk. I loved giving it, but now suddenly it's rendered moot. Like, and so I just wrote another article about like, what's the role of real estate in organizational culture now, now that we're not allowed to even occupy our real estate. Right. Um, and, you know, ultimately it's the same as it ever was. We'll, we'll get through this, whether it's in six months, 12 months or 24 months, and we'll get back to coming together as a team. And when we do, it's going to, the place where we do that's going to matter. When we do come together again, it's going to feel better than ever. It's like a rejoicing. Yeah. So we'll get back to it. It's just a question of how long. Right. Anyway, so those are things that we, we're doing differently. Um, and that's, I guess, how the industry has changed. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've essentially evolved the whole tenor representation model into this like full stack uh, of services that are all basically, you know, driven towards the optimal experience for the tenant in their space. And, exactly. and while protecting every, you know, risk or downside they have along the way, which typically they re rely on kind of a smattering of like third party um, outsourced consultants, like architects, attorneys, contractors, et cetera, that exactly who knows, maybe, maybe those uh, service providers represent their landlord and stuff like that. And in, in the real estate communities, it's so small, you know, everybody's, everybody's got their hand in the cookie jar at some, you know, some point in the road. So if you could bring the full force of just like one kind of fiduciary uh, partner to every aspect of the process, then, you know, they can, they can rest easy knowing that, you know, they're going to, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how, get, how to get the best deal, but they just know that they're going to be serviced properly. Exactly. Well, and if you think about it, like we don't typically sign engagement letters. We used to, and then we came to realize it's kind of silly. Like I'm not going to sue you. Like this is a trust relationship. Right. If ever I drop the ball, I should be, you should be able to kick me to the curb. Yep. And so we're, we're often working without engagement agreements, which drives this kind of behavior, behavior where it's like this experience has to be a 10 for you. Um, Cause otherwise I'm at risk. Right. And one of Jason Hughes' favorite quotes, he ends every team meeting with it, is Howard Schultz, uh, who says, success is not an entitlement. We have to earn it each day, each and every day. Right. And it just drives our behavior when we're sort of in an at-risk, at-will model. We're just constantly looking for ways to increase the experience of the customer. Well, totally. Since, deliver better results. Especially since, like, the way that, you know, fees are paid out, and not everybody knows this. Even tenants, most tenants don't even know it when they engage a tenant rep, is that, Ultimately, the landlord pays that commission when a lease is signed. So right. you're literally working at risk until like there's ink on paper. So you could put years into a transaction and, you know, for whatever reason, the thing dies, you know, whether it's you, you know, did a poor job and they fire you or if, you know, the, the business gets bought by a competitor and they're not going to take the space. But that's a huge yep. risk that the tenant rep takes on in that business, which is 
which is probably why they make, you know, on average more, you know, per, per transaction than an, an agency broker. But, you know, I think that's one of the kind of more unknown parts of this business. Um, everybody, you know, cheers when the Google signs a million square foot lease and some guy got rich, but like a, t- a, lot, a ton of work went into that where there right. was no guarantee of any income at any time. Exactly. I, I, you know, I, I coach some of our younger um, superstar brokers and I, I tell them what I always call the law of two X in this business, because it is such a, you know, a, a risky uh, revenue model uh, for the brokers. And so the law of two X uh, you need to, you need to make twice what you need or until you get there, spend no more than half of what you make. Right. <laughs> like That'll give you a safety margin for, things that can happen in this, in this business, live as long as you can by the law of two X. Yep. I love it. It's, it's totally true. I mean, it's a, this is just a good mantra in general, but um, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the Jarvis value model. So let's talk about the seminal work um, <laughs> circulating around LinkedIn. So um, I guess just for the audience and anybody that uh, is interested in you know, knowing, knowing your take on this, like, what is it? And specifically, you drive towards this point of getting below the line, which is where the value lives. So explain yeah. what the Jarvis value model is and how you get below the line. Great. And uh, I will, I'll do it quickly. I don't, I could talk too long about this, so I won't go into tremendous detail and anyone can go and find and read the article. And, you know, it's a, it's tongue in cheek, of course. Um, and let me just talk about my writing first. Like the reason I write, and by the way, in the coaching that I do with our team, I'm constantly pushing our team to write. Um, we're supposed to be leaders in our field. We're supposed to be thought leaders in our field. You know, what do you have to say? Right. And, and, and I often say it's not the writing that's hard. It's the thinking. What do you have to say that's fresh and interesting? And then how do you want to say it? Um, if you can walk with those long enough and sort of distill your thinking, the writing actually comes easy. So, I'm constantly pushing our team to write and produce original, fresh content. Uh, I, I need to walk the walk, so I'm constantly writing. Um, not everything I write gets published, but when I'm writing, I'm hoping, and when our team writes, one of the reasons I, I encourage it so much is if you read that article or other articles, you're going to see that I have some ideas. You're going to you know, see how I articulated those ideas, and I think some part of me comes through. Like if you take the time to read it, when you get done, I think you get me a little bit right. and all that's before, maybe before we've ever even met. So like, that's what I'm going for. Not just what I say, but how I say it. And I'm hoping you get me by the end of it. So here you got this Jarvis value model, which is kind of tongue in cheek, but kind of not. Here's my point. Um, everybody wants to think and say they got a good deal. Like people brag about the deal they got all the time. Bought a new car. Oh, I got a great deal. You know, everyone likes to, believe they're really good at negotiating. And I, I talked to the business owners who told me they got a great deal. Um, you know, they're paying four bucks or three bucks or two bucks. And if everyone's saying they got a great deal, can it be true? Um, and oftentimes I believe what happens is we make these little compromises so that we're really just sort of sliding up or down this, this value line, this sort of quality price, um, pardon my econ degree coming through and trying to draw a curve and a graph, but like class A buildings are five bucks a foot, class B are four bucks and class C are three or two bucks a foot. So you can, you can give up on quality and get a better price, but you aren't actually getting any value. You're just sort of moving along this line. 
And in the article, I give a couple examples, like if I'm going to lease a car and I, and I don't want to spend more than 500 bucks and I want to put about three grand down and I want to sign a three-year lease and I need a whole bunch of miles because I'm a broker, I drive a lot. Um, and I get in there and it's coming back at like 650 bucks. And so maybe I put five grand down instead of three grand and maybe I agree to a five-year lease instead of a three-year lease. Um, and maybe I, I say I won't drive more than 10,000 miles a year, even though I know I will. And lo and behold, I get this car at 500 bucks um, and I got a great deal, but I, but I didn't really, I just sort of made these compromises. Um, I, I, another example in the article, you know, shopping at Costco, people love to shop at Costco. Look at the price. It's the best price you can pay, right? right. Except you have to pay an annual membership fee and, you often end up buying more of the stuff than you really need because they sell it in bulk. And so you, you suffer the burden of like bulk inventory storage. I don't know about you, but I've got no more room for storing anything. I don't need a pallet full of paper towels. Yeah. <laughs> um, or maybe, maybe it's food and it goes bad before I can get to eating it and I throw it away. But yeah, so, or you just get sick of eating Cheerios because you bought like eight boxes. <laughs> yeah. of them. But you got such a good price that we all belong to Costco. And my last one is the like Nordstrom, right? I, I like to shop at Nordstrom Rack. I like to get Nordstrom clothes at half the price, but they aren't really the same clothes. They've probably been on the rack a little too long. They've, you know, been shipped down to this sort of wholesale shop. You got to stand in line a little longer. Ultimately, it's just a totally different experience than that original retail Nordstrom experience. Um, but we're willing to do it because we, we get a good price. And, and, and here's, here's my point. I knew I'd get carried away if I started talking about this. The, like, the commercial real estate market is actually a, an inefficient market. As an efficient market, I would point you to the stock market where a million buyers and a million sellers are trading these shares of stock every second, setting and resetting a market price. It's, you're not going to get a share of stock. You're not going to be able to buy one for less than it's worth that's constantly resetting and, and it's a very efficient marketplace. But in commercial real estate, like I've seen way too many outlier transactions to believe that there's this efficient market and we can look at comps and all of a sudden we believe that $4 and 50 cents is a fair price. There's a market price. That's market rent. Um, there's just way too many outliers. Every tenant is unique. Every landlord is unique. Their circumstance changes over time. The real estate they're haggling over is unique. It's just way, way too dynamic. And, and I'll give you one example. Um, I'm not going to name names. Uh, a, a deal I did for about 140,000 feet uh, with a REIT. And the building that we were going to uh, had been empty for about three and a half years. It was an embarrassment for this REIT. And for the local um, asset manager, a regional asset manager, you know, his, his job was on the line. Like they couldn't, they had to lease it. Right. And so we negotiated and we got this fantastic outcome. And at the end, oh, by the way, we need you to assume responsibility for this one trailing lease that we've got. And, you know, it comes to about another $10 million on top of everything else in this transaction. And they did it. Um, you know, it's just, it doesn't fit on the comp sheet. It doesn't make sense. And they did it because they had to. Um, they couldn't report to the street another quarter of that vacancy the asset manager's job was on the line so they did it you know but if i'm thinking i know what market is i would have never even tried for that yeah or if there, so there's just lot lots of examples yeah or if there there were an efficient marketplace you know that building you know wouldn't have been vacant that long like there would have been 
a drop in the price and it, and somebody would have scooped it up and it just would have been what it was. But, you know, the, the situation that the owner's in was really what dictated the deal. And, you know, that, that a complete outlier when you look at it at the broader market, yeah. that this stuff happens well, all and, the time. And like you say, they could have lowered the price previously. They didn't. And it's just funny how often like a board of directors will just make a big decision to cut and run. And all of a sudden, you know, so maybe an overreaction, maybe. Yeah. And we're here to take advantage of that. That's what we do. Yep. So data obviously is, is something that's coming to, you know, the forefront in terms of commercial real estate as a market and uh, the company that I previously worked at VTS, you know, they provide software to owners to help them manage their leasing pipeline and their asset management side of the house. And essentially what it does is it aggregates all of the data from, you know, prospects touring through LOI negotiations, through, you know, lease clauses, et cetera. And it just gives an owner a lot of comfort with having a data-driven way to understand the performance of a portfolio. So that's just the, the ownership side of things. And in general, there's just been this boom of commercial real estate tech coming out over the last 10 years. And, you know, it feels like the ultimate thrust is to try to create a more efficient marketplace using data that has, you know, traditionally been locked up in, you know, manual processes, you know, proposal uh, negotiations, spreadsheets, et cetera. It all happens on paper. So if there's a world that exists in the future that, you know, provides more data to this, um, this business, is there, is there a possibility of a efficient marketplace? And does, what is the implication to the brokerage business if, if, if that happens? Uh, I think, I think ultimately there is always a role you know, in high value transactions, there's always a role for an astute sort of advocate and an advisor. We're, we're a little bit more like investment brokers than we are like real estate brokers, right? right. So, I mean, um, I agree with the data um, and the opportunity for efficiency. And yet, you know, the structure of the industry is such that I don't think it it, it will never be like the stock market, right. um, you know, people's what they want in space. Every building is unique. What people want changes over time. Um, just for example, we've got a, let me decide if I can say this, we've got a, there's a requirement we're working on. It's about 60,000 feet um, class A office. And suddenly we're finding opportunities in this marketplace that aren't listed. Um, Brokers basically telling us, look, I can't, I can't put this in writing, but this is coming. Um, or another landlord saying, I haven't gotten this back yet, but this tenant is in default. Um, you know, that's just the nature of this business where it's never gonna, going to be entirely captured in a dashboard. Um, it's too right. dynamic and it's too sticky. And there's always going to be a role for, you know, a strong advocate that can help navigate a, a complex negotiation. Yeah, and I agree. I think um, there might be some sort of consolidation of data on the inventory side where, you know, it, it becomes a little more clear what's actually available, but there's always going to be a need for that advocate, you know, the this, this strategic part of it, this, the person who has done it before. You're right. That's exactly a great analogy. That's why people go to financial advisors, right? Because they don't want to, yeah. they don't want to figure out how to put together an investment portfolio. There's too many considerations that they're not educated in. 
And and don't get me wrong, on the landlord side, I'm all for um, data, 100% data transparency. Let's go. Like right. the idea of a pocket listing has always been so heinous to me. If 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 I own a building and it's empty, I want the world to know that it's available. Why would I ever want that? I, I suppose there are very limited circumstances where a company might not want to share broadly about a space availability. But no, by and large, like let's get that distributed information as far and as wide as possible. Let's get good data out there. You know, the, the, the idea that people list buildings as available and they list the asking rental rate as withheld is ridiculous. That's one of our pet peeves. Like put the, put the data in the system and let us get to work. Yeah. Like, you know, don't, don't you want to lease the space? Like, I mean, <laughs> the, the whole point is trying to create opportunity, you know, for your client um, yeah. rather than yeah. conceal, you know, for, for your personal benefit or something like that. Yeah. There's, yeah. So let's go. I'm all for more yeah. public data. I'm, I'm in agreement with you there. Cool. All right. So talk a little bit about how you go about um, customer relationship management, finding business. Um, how do you keep the team motivated to go out there and, uh, you know, fill the pipeline with opportunities? Uh, you know, um, Oh, I don't know. How do, how do, how do I find business uh, word of mouth referral, repeat business? Yeah. Um, you know, we, as a tenant representation firm, you'll find that it's moments like this when the tenant rep shops make up some ground, right? Suddenly everyone is talking about their lease. Suddenly everyone wants to know if they can renegotiate their lease and restructure their lease. Um, so we've never been busier. Right. Um, and we think we have an important role to play hard for the full service shops to sort of figure out, peg the new market. Now it's been really interesting to watch how they're sort of slow to come around. Um, maybe it's the information silos that they're living in and they're talking to investors and asset managers and owners and landlords, and everyone's kind of trying to hold it together, but we're out talking to CEOs and CFOs of businesses that are struggling. So I think our vantage is a little more, clear and we're trying to be honest in our reporting about what's happened what's happening and what's likely to happen um so we think we're in a unique position to sort of help peg the new market and to do it with empathy you know again these landlords aren't bad people and they're suffering too uh, but there's some difficult conversations to be had and we're in a better position to drive those conversations than um, the full service shops that are still hoping to pick up listings from these guys down the road yeah I mean, so given, you know, the uncertainty with how COVID's going to ultimately impact the commercial real estate market, you know, in general, what companies you think are going to end up winning, if you will, I'll put winning in air quotes, like, you know, obviously you have companies that are probably just going to go to every owner that they occupy space with and just ask for a rate cut or try to blend and extend or something like that. But is there a, a profile of company that's looking at this in a certain way, not just with the transaction of renegotiating a lease, but how they reorganize their workforce, how they think about um, utilization of space, et cetera. Who's on the kind of the cutting edge of that? Um, so I would say this, I would say there are no winners, right? Only survivors. I mean, this is just okay. brutal. This is just brutal. And, so there's maybe two sectors that have avoided so far um, a lot of the suffering, and that would be life science. Um, 
you know, we just, I just had a lease signed for a biotech client um, that's going to be doing uh, COVID-19 testing, which is fantastic. Um, by and large, the life science companies continue unabated. Um, and, and I wrote an article about this, you know, life science to the rescue. These guys are in the spotlight. They're, they're going to find the vaccine that gets us through this COVID-19 nonsense. Um, so life science largely so far has been unaffected um, and sort of big box industrial. I mean, look at the reliance on our supply chain and, um, you know, Amazon taking down more space. Are they a winner? I mean, I'm not sure they're a winner. They're a survivor. And it's accelerating the pace towards online shopping and online groceries and all of that. So I guess you could call those winners, but I tend to think of them as survivors. Otherwise, you know, here's, here's what I say. I, I, there's, there's the interim period while we're all in this shelter in place, work from home nonsense. And then there's once we can return to a version of normal when there's a vaccine. Okay. So my concern is that we're in this interim phase for too long for it not to leave a mark. Right. Like, Everyone's going to be affected. Even the life science companies, when they go back for the next round of funding, everyone's going to be a little bit tight. Um, and valuations, I think, could be impacted. So I don't think anyone comes through this unscathed. Um, but, yeah, we tend to think that the market's going to have a lasting um, impact from COVID. Less space, a lot of people re-evaluating. I know that there was an article in the journal here recently about the people aren't enjoying the work from home. And in fact, there's going to be a resurgence back to the office, right. you know, and, people, and, and I think, I think that's true, but I think it's going to be altered. There's just too many people that are telling me they never realized before how effective some of their people could be some of the time working remotely. Um, that, that's almost universally true. Um, you know, the people that are saying you, you never have to come back to the office. That's pretty extreme. I think they may end up revisiting that, but no one's going back to the way it was. No one's going back to bench seating. Um, no one's going back to 100% of the employees in the office 100% of the time. We're all, we've all figured out that there's a hybrid model, and that's going to make a lasting impact on the on the office market. Yeah, it's crazy how it you know takes a global pandemic to actually bring some of these you know issues to to the fore and expose yeah. some some of the interesting parts of like. How, how companies are occupying space, utilizing space, thinking about their workforce, et cetera. But, yeah, I mean, especially San Francisco, where they were, the companies are making forward commitments of a half a million square feet that they won't get for three years because they were so convinced they were going to need it. You know, I mean, that's just, in hindsight, uh, maybe that was a bit too bullish. <laughs> yeah. I think some of, us, some of us felt that way at the time. But yeah, like you say, it took a global pandemic for us to all hit pause and notice, here's a funny, I haven't written this article yet, but I've got an article I'm thinking about, if I can find the right way to say it. It's like our lives are like a snow globe where you're shaking all the snow, right? And we're all in this hectic sort of pre-COVID pandemonium, day after day, hard work. And then COVID hit and we all had to work from home. And all of a sudden it's like you put down the snow globe and all the snow sort of sifts to the bottom. Remember how the air got really clear all of a sudden because nobody was yeah. driving or flying. And all of us have this like moment where, because we're not in the frantic shaken snow globe, we're, we're in this moment of sort of silence where we're retrenched and at home and everyone starts to see things that they haven't seen for a long time because they can finally see through the snow. 
and they realize, oh, I, I don't actually have to go into the office every day. Um, yeah, so I think all of us have a different perspective because we've had the benefit of um, hitting pause and letting the snow drift to the bottom and seeing clearly a few things for the first time. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. Hopefully, at some point, we get to shake the snow globe back up a little bit, maybe not as <laughs> frantically as it was uh, <laughs> blustering around before. But uh, I agree. We'll get agree. there. All right, John. Well, this has been great, man. I really appreciate your um, perspective on just tenant representation, how to advocate for your client, um, your kind of candid thoughts on on the business from brokerage and uh, dual agency and all that stuff. I think you guys, you guys have obviously got a unique perspective on things, and it's um, you know it's very relevant to what we do here at Occupier as well as we're you know selling software solutions to the same end user. So. Um, hopefully our audience gets a lot of value out of your, your thoughts here. We really appreciate your time. Hey, Matt, thank you. Thanks for reading. When I write these things, I'll keep writing if you'll keep reading. And uh, let's talk again sometime. Yeah, keep writing, man. And I'll, I'll be sure to <laughs> repost all that stuff out there. You got it. All right, John, take care. Thanks. Th- thanks, Matt. Bye. Bye. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed that conversation with John Jarvis of Hughes Marino. Check us out on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, check us out at Occupier.com. Add us with any comments, likes, etc. Stay tuned. We'll talk to you for the next one.